There are some who call me... Tim? The lights go down and shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. Mike, you know, I think that uh, when it comes to the whole subject of UFOs, probably one of the more controversial subjects has to do with uh, uh, crashed flying saucers. And I, I hate to use the word flying saucer because that's become such a joke uh, right. now, now over the years. But uh, almost from the very beginning... Um, you know, there have been reports of uh, whatever these things are uh, falling down from from the sky. I mean, uh, there was even a story that uh, that came out supposedly long before uh, the the 1940s of uh, uh, of a crashed UFO at uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Right, right. Yeah. Well, there was there was also a story of one that crashed in Texas. You know, an, an alien supposedly alien, allegedly being buried there on the site or close to it. And then, of course, there was the great airship, airship mystery, which had disabled UFOs, whatever they actually were, that were having problems or appeared to be having problems. But if you even go back further, you know, in the Middle Ages, you'll find similar stories. They don't call them UFOs or flying saucers, but oh, no. uh, skyships is what they call them, mm-hmm. you know, where they, they get hung up on uh, something with an anchor or something like that. So it's it's as if this phenomenon has always been here, and it just seems to update itself to match our expectation or our own technological uh, development. So it's it's very strange. Well, you know the the story that you were referring to of the uh, the anchor, the uh, uh, the skyship uh, uh, getting caught with their anchor. Uh, that's, right. That's the one where the anchor dropped down from the sky and got caught on a church steeple. A church steeple. Yeah. All right. Exactly. All right. Now, and I've heard very uh, several different variations of that, where you know, like a uh, a person you know shimmied down the rope to try to untangle it, but people right. actually managed to drag him off and then beat him to death. Right. Um, well, well, you know this this is one of those things that you say, well, that's just you know folklore, but. When you look at it, uh, it, it was well documented at the time, mm-hmm. and it was taken seriously by the people doing the documentation. So, you know, um, well, that's something's those, definitely going on. So. Well, that's one of those stories. It's like, why would somebody make something that like that up? Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, sure, people were just as imaginative. You know, yeah, back but then in, as in, those, in those days, yeah, in those days, making up a story like that could have, you know, if they could prove you made it up, you would have been burned to the stake or, you know, or, or, or stoned to death or something. I mean, people took that stuff seriously. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Well, so, yeah. So, well, so, you know, we, we come up now to, you know, modern times when uh, the, the the UFO mystery really st- started hot and heavy, you know, especially uh, in the year 1947 when the uh, press coverage uh, went crazy with it. And uh, now, you know, 
when you think of UFOs and crash flying saucers, most people now automatically just think of the Roswell incident. You know that 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 seems to be the uh, you know unfortunately the one that carries the full weight of the whole crash flying saucer. Uh, however. Right. You have other incidents, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to be talking about the uh, the Aztec UFO incident, and uh, this is this is one that I think um, probably, and and you know our guests will have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think probably the first book ever dealing with the whole idea of crash flying saucers was written in 1950 by a reporter for a Variety uh, by the name of uh, Frank Scully. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, and uh, at that at that point, people had completely forgotten about Roswell. I mean, it's not like that subject got that yeah, much it did, press. Yeah, exactly. Outside it didn't really of the start, area. Well, yeah, it didn't. Roswell didn't start coming coming becoming a major um, theme, I guess you could say, in UFO research until the late seventies, early eighties. Um, really. Mm-hmm. Right at that time, so yeah, well, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, William Moore and I think it was Charles Burlett's yes, uh, uh, yes, book, you know, about that. Uh, right. But well, okay, uh, enough of us talking here. You know, people people don't want to hear us; they they want to hear right. our guests. So we have with us uh, tonight we have uh, Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, and we also have uh, uh, Frank Thayer. And uh, they have written uh, several books now about uh, the whole uh, uh, Aztec incident, their most recent being the Aztec UFO incident. So, uh, uh, guys, thank you for uh, being with us tonight. We, uh, we really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're happy to be here. All right. And just so just so everybody knows, uh, uh, Scott and Suzanne uh, wanted to uh, uh, say hi again to us so we know we can distinguish whom we're talking with. I'm Suzanne. I'm Scott. Okay, and Frank? That's me. That's Frank. All right. And you, you know what, Tim and Mike? This yes. is the first time that Scott, Suzanne, and myself have been on the air together. And they're in North Carolina, and I'm in New Mexico. So it took Skype to bring us together this morning. <laughs> that's great. That's, that's great. Frank, you got a great radio voice, man. You should... Uh... You should consider a career in that. So, <laughs> uh, some people have often told me I have a great face for radio. Okay, well, uh, let's uh, let's just let's just get right down into this, guys. Um, now, uh, we know we know that uh, uh, Frank Scully uh, wrote the wrote the first book about uh, the uh, the Aztec UFO incident, but. Uh, Let's let me hear from uh, 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 Scott and Suzanne and Frank. Um, what got you, uh, Scott? Uh, am I correct that uh, you were the you were the first one of the group here that uh, uh, got interested in this subject? Uh, am I correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. It was late uh, late nineteen eighty six, late October. I was out in uh, Farmington to see a client. First time to see him. We had talked on the phone many times. And uh, Farmington, New Mexico is oh, roughly 20, 22 miles west, northwest of Aztec. And uh, we were testing a big generator late on a Friday. And the, most of the employees at this company at that time were Navajo Indians. 
and they're about my age guys, and they were talking about what they were doing that weekend, and one said, well, I'm thinking of going out to Hart Canyon and look for a place to hunt mule deer. And the other one said, uh, yeah, okay, whereabouts, maybe I'll meet you out there. And he said, well, I'll be, you know, I'll be looking around the old crash site. I think he said, I'm going to park around the old crash site. Hmm. And my ears perked up, and I thought, crash site, crash site? And I asked him, I said, you know, I was trying to make conversation. They didn't know me from Adam. And I said, uh, what uh, what crash site? And they said, oh, it's an old folklore, old wives' tale, flying saucer in the late 40s, early 50s, crashed out in Hart Canyon. And that kind of drew my attention. I thought, well, they can't be confusing it with Roswell because we're, we're at the complete opposite ends of the state, Roswell being in the southeastern section. <laughs> and Aztec being up in the northwest quarter. And long story short, we went back to the Holiday Inn to, to enjoy a Friday night cold beer and on a bar napkin. I think I still have it. They drew me a map uh, how to get there, uh, but warned me that the little car I had from Hertz uh, wasn't four-wheel drive, and it probably wouldn't be the best idea to go out looking too deep. And so I, I drove out to what I thought was Hart Canyon Road. Of course, those canyon roads aren't marked. They're all in unimproved roads. And knowing I'd be back in about six weeks, I decided to uh, save that journey for a, another trip. And it wasn't really until January of 87 I got back out there. And it just, just I just, the, the, the Aztec flying saucer, whatever hook got sunk then, and I've been on the bandwagon ever since. Hmm. Well, uh, why don't uh, uh, somebody? I don't. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, Scott, uh, uh, Frank. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the whole uh, legend of the Aztec UFO crash? For you know, for for those in our audience who may have never heard of this before. Go ahead, Frank. Well, the legend, of course, started with Frank Scully in 1950. He sold 50,000 books. It should have been a story that was common knowledge to everybody in the United States. And we'll eventually get around to talking about why it became a hoax. <clears throat> but Frank Scully identified the place 500 miles from Denver. He identified what happened, what they found, the, the disc, the bodies. All this stuff was in his book. And uh, when I came to it, it was much later. I was somewhat interested in flying saucers through my career and my writing career, but I always thought that Aztec was a misidentified place. I found the Roswell incident just like the rest of you did and said, there it is. There's the one incident that proves that there was such a thing as, as flying saucers. And it was only later that I discovered William Steinman's book, a UFO Crash at Aztec, a well-kept secret. It was so well-kept that his 1986 book was unknown to me until 2006. <laughs> and uh, he he did it a monumental amount of work. He read Frank Scully in California and drove all the way to New Mexico because he was curious, just like Scott, about finding out if there was anything tr to it. And he found that Scully's information was right on the money. Everything that Scully said, he was able to find um, in at the Hart Canyon site. And so when I got to it in 2006, I wrote an, uh, an essay on it in my website, uh, frankthere.net, and that's where Scott found me in 2009. And it took him about 
two minutes to convince me that I wanted to get on board and ride the crazy train, and I've been on it ever since. <laughs> well, now, uh, how did uh, how did Frank Scully uh, come across this, and uh, you know, and, and, and you know why? Uh, you know, I mean, here you have a, uh, uh, he was a reporter for Variety, right? Uh, you know, what, uh, what, what got him interested enough to write a book about, uh, uh, you know, uh, even, even in 1950, a controversial subject? Where are we going with this? I, I think that having read Frank Skelly's book, and everyone on, on air now has, that he knew an oil man named Silas Newton who befriended him. And Silas Newton knew some top-secret research scientists who'd worked with the government and Vannevar Bush during the war, and they told him about research they were doing on a flying saucer found near Aztec. And he went with this story, and it all revolves around a lecture at the University of Denver and how angry that made the government, and it went from there. But let me throw it over to, to Suzanne or Scott to, to keep it going on this about Frank Scully and, and how it happened. All right. Uh, when, the, when, the, when Silas Newton introduced Scully to the scientists that uh, collectively were, were called Dr. G, um, they kind of convinced Scully that the story would break anyway. Eventually the story was going to break, and I think they even said within the year. <clears throat> And uh, Scully kind of bought into that. And in a very short time, I think it was 94, 92 days, start to finish, wrote the book Behind the Flying Saucers. Wow. Which, by the way, just for, for historical purposes, that was the first hardback book ever written on flying saucers. It about tied uh, Donald Kehoe's paperback. They come out almost about the same time. But it, it, the Behind the Flying Saucers was basically, you know, 95% of the book dedicated just to the Aztec story. Uh, knowing or believing that the story would break within the year, Scully decided to get a jump on everybody and uh, do a few articles and then eventually, you know, the book that came out September 17th, 1950. Uh, and that's how the whole thing got started. Uh, it's an amazing story and... Uh, Scully mentioned it in two other books after Behind the Flying Saucers, but that they they were you know books that were written about his life and not dedicated to the the Aztec story. And uh, as we archived uh, through his uh, uh, his works that are now up at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, he had started a, another book dedicated just to the Aztec crash, and so did Silas Newton. And uh, the unpublished manuscripts are at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. They're quite interesting. We have copies of both. So, well, in uh, in, in 1950, when uh, Behind the Flying Saucers came out, I mean, you know, we're talking about really just a couple of years after the whole UFO, uh, modern UFO era started, you know, if you want to trace it back to... Uh, uh, the 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 UFOs seen over the uh, the Cascade Mountains, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and I know that um, within the military, the the idea that that these crafts could be you know from another planet hadn't really been kicked around that much. They were worried that they were dealing with say like maybe you know. Uh, 
some kind of Soviet aircraft or even Nazis, you know, that the Nazis had uh, regrouped somewhere and were, you know, sending their aircraft over the United States. So in 1950, when you had somebody like Scully release a book that talked about a crashed UFOs that contained bodies of non-human occupants, that had to have been pretty much a shocker at the time. Yeah, it, uh, I think that really, you know, you had Kenneth Arnold in, in June of 47 and the, the famous uh, Roswell incident that happened in July. Of course, all that was swept under the rug. And then, you know, a couple of years later, or eight months later, then you have the Aztec deal. And uh, 1950, then you have Scully's book and, and Donald Kehoe's book. So, yeah, that was the whole beginning of uh, the the serious uh, public interest in flying saucers. So uh, when uh, uh, what was the date that the Aztec crash allegedly happened? March 25th, 1948. 1948, okay. And uh, were, there, uh, were there eyewitnesses that, oh, uh, that saw goodness. it come down? There sure were. Mm-hmm. All right. That's it's, it. <laughs> it started up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and this was uh, a bit of time before the actual incident happened. They had been had sightings in both Los Alamos and then Cuba, New Mexico, which is about a hundred miles from uh, Aztec. And on this particular day, it was the evening before the the landing and crash. There were two police officers that were sitting at a local cafe. They met regularly to discuss all the happenings. And um, this particular time they were talking about that they had had so many sightings themselves as well as reports of uh, craft, lights, a variety of things. And one of the officers offered that the next one that I see, I'm going to follow. Hmm. Well, it just so happened it was that evening, and he began to follow it, and his comments were that it looked as if it were a fluttering leaf, and it would uh, wobble as it traveled. So he followed it for almost 100 miles. Now, if you've ever been to New Mexico, there's a lot of wide open space, but there's also some windy roads, some cliffs and bluffs that can impair your view. As he, as they approached Blanco, New Mexico, he lost it for a short period of time, lost sight of it. Mm-hmm. And by this time, it's about five o'clock in the morning, and there is a uh, goat rancher that steps out of his house, according to his normal routine, and is walking over to let the goats out of the pen. And as he lifts it up, he hears a loud noise, which he later described as like a sonic boom. And he looked up, and here sits this 100-foot craft above him. And it's wobbling. He he describes something very similar. Excuse me. And it proceeds to go close to and actually hits one of the, the bluffs, just adjacent to his property. And when it does, sparks fly. And then it bounces off and continues north. And so um, Mr. Archuleta, Valentine Archuleta is the rancher's name, 
he is a Bataan Death March survivor. So that kind of gives you an idea of the credibility of this person. I mean, this is someone who's highly credible. They didn't have any phones nearby, and so um, they were sparse. They're not real. <laughs> They're pretty sparse today, even oh, phones yeah. out there. He uh, walked to the mercantile and picked up the, the community phone, called the Air Force Base, Kirtland, and reported it and didn't see any activity. So he went back a while later and, and said, are you, are you checking into this? He, he was really concerned about it. So meanwhile, the craft continues, and it ends up in Hart Canyon on a mesa. And if you're not from that part of the country and aren't familiar with the term mesa, a mesa means tabletop or table. And it's a form of a mountain, but it's flat on top. So here we have oil field workers that are out there looking at a... a, uh, brush fire, and a couple of additional oil field workers pull up, and they ask, you know, is a fire, what's going on with the fire? And they said, don't worry about the fire, it's in a distance away, it's no problem. They were concerned, of course, for the rigs and for some of the equipment you can imagine with oil field um, uh, mechanical items, you just don't want to have fire near any of that. They said, but you'll be really fascinated if you go up on the mesa and take a look at what we found. Hmm. So the whole group climbs up and gets on top of the mesa, and here sits this 100-foot, perfectly intact craft. And there they find ranchers, they find a county commissioner, they find um, the two police officers end up there. Now we have two police officers. We have some other witnesses that were passerbyers. And the young oil field workers, 18 to 21 years old, start crawling around on it. Of course, their first thought was, is this, you know, one of our craft that we're not familiar with? Or is this, is there somebody inside? Do we need to help them? Mm-hmm. And of course, the ranchers in the group were very concerned, yelling at them, get off, get off. You don't even know what it is. You can imagine. So they, as they crawl around on it, and they look very, very closely, there's no cracks, but they do find a small hole. And now, as they're very, very close, they see that there are portholes that are covered by like a mirrored sunglass material, so it just blended in perfectly. You couldn't see it from a distance. So as they try to peer through the hole, they see some things, one of the oil field workers runs down and grabs a pole, brings it up, and pokes it inside of the hole. And somehow they must have hit a lever or something, and a, the craft opens up and a staircase drops down. So several of the oil field workers, the young, young men, go in just to the first level. There's three levels to the first level, and they see two slumped-over bodies. And about this time, the military shows up. As the witnesses look around, they see a helicopter coming in. And one of the comments that's really interesting is that the helicopter was just as fascinating as the saucer to them. (laughs) Because, keep in mind, this is 1948, and uh, a helicopter had just been 
or the helicopter had just been introduced to the public. So technology is very different nowadays. Now, of course, we'd be fascinated with a saucer and a helicopter would mean nothing to us. Right. So the military takes them and and uh, separates them and talks to each one and emphasizes just how important it is that this be kept secret and for the most part sends them home. Meanwhile, there is a minister, a Baptist, uh, uh, Baptist minister, who is a circuit minister, and he's passing by the road, and he, of course, can't see the craft, but he sees a lot of commotion with vehicles and things and wonders, you know, if there's been an, uh, an oil field accident or, or something, some kind of a problem, maybe I should stop. So he goes down the road, and as he approaches, the military reach out to him and said, who are you, you know, what do you want? And he describes, I'm, I'm a minister, and they said, we would really like for you to come with us. So they approach, and here are 16 bodies laying on the ground, and they ask him to say prayers over them. They're all deceased. And he finishes up saying the prayers. It shook him up. He has about an hour and a half, two hours, depending on which way you go, ride to uh, Mancus, Colorado, he gets to his church and he calls together some of his close friends and parishioners. And he says, I, I need to talk to you in private. They all come in and he's so shook up. He tells them the story of what he has seen and is just sobbing. And um, from there, um, we go to, um, let's see, what would be the next? I guess that's the end of the witnesses right there. So those are really the witnesses that were there the day of the craft landing. There are other witnesses that we had, but that's the day of the craft landing. Well, unlike the uh, the Roswell crash, which, I mean, people didn't run across the debris from that until after the fact. I mean, here we have a story of, of, of multiple eyewitnesses seeing this thing in the air and coming down uh, uh, intact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, yes. Yeah, but 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 everybody. I mean, you know, uh, everybody gives all the love to Roswell, and uh, and nothing nothing to the Aztec crash. <laughs> well, Mike and Tim, we have to look at the X Files current edition, and Agent Mulder saying that Aztecs more important than Roswell, and <clears throat> we have to agree with that because you have the chain of evidence. You have the sighting of the saucer, the landing of the saucer, the witnesses, and Scott Ramsey was able to get live interviews with two witnesses who didn't really know each other 50 years later, and they told identical stories even to how many people were on the Mesa, the bodies, the cops that were on the Mesa. And when you have two stories separated, no collusion, and these people tell the same thing, uh, that's a slam dunk to me. Well, well another, an, another thing is, don't, don't forget this. Native Americans specifically are not prone to exaggeration. They tend to just tell it like it is as they see it, you know, what happened to them. Um, so that's also something to take into consideration. Additionally, you know, we're able to, unlike any other story, we're able to track... Um, some of the work that was done on the craft, we were the scientists that worked on it, and I use these two words very specifically, although I think they get overused and become diluted, cover-up and conspiracy. 
we're able to, it's not just, oh, it was covered up or it was just a conspiracy. We're able to document that. Right. So, so I'm, I'm sorry, I just wanted to ask. No, go ahead. To this, to this day, at that site, are there people still going there to investigate? Oh, yeah. The, the site is actually, uh, it's open to the public. Uh, the Bureau of Land Management uh, allows the public on there. There's actually a gate now going out to the site. Uh, they have a thing called the Alien Bike Run, which is a uh, very popular thing. I mean, it's drop-dead beautiful out by the crash site. Well, all yeah. of New Mexico, in my opinion, is drop-dead beautiful, but oh, it's, yeah. ex- it's extremely beautiful out in that area. Um, it's used as uh, part of the bike uh, run. Uh, the bike run, I don't know how many miles long it is, but it takes you right through the crash site. In 2000, uh, we erected a plaque there. Uh, commemorating the, what happened and a short story, uh, what uh, we, we felt uh, was important to tell the public. And then I believe in 2007 or 2008, we actually updated the plaque. And uh, kind of, so it's kind of, a, kind of a fun touristy stop. People go out and take a picture of themselves next to the plaque. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's very accessible now as opposed to, you know, 30, 29 or 30 years ago when I first went out there. Right. Well, now, Scott, when uh, when you first started uh, uh, going up to that site, I mean, was there any uh, was there any physical evidence uh, uh, remaining that uh, something unusual had happened there at one time? Uh, there was a lot of dead trees that looked like they were plowed over. So, to me, and, and some friends that went up there immediately, we said, "Well, you know, whether it was a flying saucer." or not, something obviously impacted up here, whether it be an airplane or whatever. Uh, back when the Aztec Library started, uh, they started their UFO symposium in 98, uh, I got involved. That's how I met Suzanne. Uh, we asked the Bureau of Land Management for permission to take people out there for tours. And uh, a couple of there were a couple stipulations. One was we had to clear all the trip hazards, so we had to take all these dead, twisted uh, pinion and uh, cottonwood trees and move them out of the path of uh, what the tour would be. Hmm. And I, luckily, Bill Steinman and I have photographs of what it looked like with all the dead trees, and they it looks like something just came and landed or crashed on the top and just knocked over a bunch of trees. The dead trees are still there. Luckily, nobody burned them or made a campfire out of them. And uh, the the cleared area uh, where the the craft came to rest is, you know, quite obvious there. And that's where we have the plaque. So when you're reading the plaque, you're actually looking exactly at the spot where the craft uh, came to rest. Uh, but because the craft didn't come apart, it wasn't like a Roswell craft that there was a debris field. Uh, there's really no evidence left behind. I mean, as you read in the book, over the years we mapped it uh, on graph paper and we went up with really expensive rented uh, metal detectors. So, yeah, we found things that were very circumstantial. They, you know, M1 Grand clips and beech nut uh, aluminum foil, uh, tobacco pouches, uh, 
but you know, the K ration cans, but mm. that's also a very popular place for hunters too. Right, right. Now, I was going to say that you know, any time yeah. that there's a military presence, even if it's just for a short time, they're going to leave some kind of debris behind. Well, the one thing they left behind that I don't think they thought was going to be a big deal was what we call the military road. And there's a mystery road that's cut into a, well, I guess we don't have an aerial picture on, in the new book. Um, but anyway, there's a road that's cut down to what I would call like a cul-de-sac. Mm-hmm. And there is where the, they, we have pieced together, they loaded the craft onto a M24, M25 flatbed tank. Uh, flat, excuse me, I'm sorry. No, that's all right. <laughs> Hang on one second. Go ahead, go ahead, sweetie. So anyway, uh, when you look at it, these the dragon wagon that he's just describing was big enough to haul tanks off the battlefield. And I think that's the obvious vehicle to remove a 100-foot saucer that broke into three pieces. It was modular. And even Frank Scully tells us how that happened. You back, Scott? Yeah, I'm back. Sorry about that. No, that's all right. Uh, yeah, the, the military road is probably the biggest piece of physical evidence that nobody can really explain. It's a road purposely cut to do something with that mesa out there. And back in the late uh, 90s, I interviewed a gentleman uh, who we refer to as George in the book. And uh, he was working at Walker Airfield uh, during the cleanup and uh, never saw the craft other than photographs. We found him going through some old Air Force reports hmm. that he was getting all the quote-unquote good UFO reports. And uh, I tracked him down just to see if he knew anything about uh, the Aztec crash. I brought all the documents back that I had declassified from his old group. And uh, to my chagrin and surprise, he opened up about uh, the, the Aztec recovery. And he told us if we if we were sure we we're at the right mesa and the military road, that there should be concrete footers. He used the plural term, although we've only found one. And after he told that story, a dear friend of ours, Randy Barnes, went out with rebar, poking it through the old silty road, and sure enough, we found about a meter square of a concrete pad that was poured that we deem was an important part as of being used as a footer for the crane support. Huh. Something that... No you, other reason it's really there. Right. I mean, there's no reason for concrete to be there. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Just out there in the middle of nowhere, there shouldn't be any reason for somebody to have uh, poured uh, concrete footers sometime in the past. Well, yeah, it, it's heavily, it's, well, today, too, uh, back then and today, there's a lot of oil and gas exploration going on and pumping. But you don't normally drill through a mesa to get the natural gas and oil when you can go down to the bottom of the hill and drill like everybody else has done for oil and gas. Hmm. Um, so it really, it you know, we had it tested. We, we were told by the debunkers and skeptics it was nothing more than a well cap. And again, you don't find a well cap up on a solid rock mesa but uh, just for our own curiosity we had a core sample drilled out of it and sent to a lab and it's it's just over nine inches thick which is enormous for a a concrete slab that is Uh, and uh, we have been able to 
determine that it's not newer than 1948, that we've not been able to do a test to specifically get within six months of when the concrete was poured. That technology is available. It's extremely expensive. All right. Well, let's uh, we need to go to uh, our first break of the evening. And uh, when we come back, I want to uh, bring up Frank, you uh, uh, you said something about this craft being taken apart because it's modular. And uh, that's that's pretty unique, uh, I think, in uh, all of uh, crashed UFO lore. So I want to bring that up when we come back. So, uh, Mike, let's go ahead and do our break. When we All come, right, let's do it. When we come back, we will continue our discussion about the uh, crashed UFO incident at Aztec, New Mexico. I'm Tim Swartz. You're listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Stay tuned. Still begs for change Mama won't say his name We like to talk about him Every holiday My friends are moved away Music just ain't the same We like to talk about him Every holiday Sipping punch and watching kids and getting drunk Fall over them and wish away my little brain Over and over again Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call key information solutions now. 954-973-3374 That's 954-973-3374 Or visit keyinformation.com Look, up in the sky It's a bird It's a plane No, it's supermanhomepage.com The number one Superman fan site in the world Supermanhomepage.com Covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com For all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Conspiracy Journal is your number one source for the hidden world of the weird and strange. We bring you thought-provoking and controversial material for free-thinking individuals who are seeking what is really going on in our world today. Some of this material may adversely affect you. Other pieces are meant to enlighten. 
Either way, be prepared to be intrigued by such things as the reality of UFOs, ghosts, strange creatures from time and space, hidden conspiracies, time travel, Nikola Tesla, suppressed technology, and a whole lot more. You can find out more by visiting our website at conspiracyjournal.com. There you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter sent directly to your email address. You can also receive our free print catalog. Just send your name and mailing address to mrufo8 at hotmail.com. I'll spell that out for you. M-R-U-F-O, the number 8, at hotmail.com. Mr. UFO8 at hotmail.com. Find out what they don't want you to know. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Now you can share the topics that drive the discussions of your favorite talk shows with TalkStream Live's topic-driven talk radio. List and promote real-time talk radio topics or post the topics that you want to hear. Hot topics are tweeted and retweeted and include simple click-to-listen audio links. The future of talk radio is topic-driven talk radio. Available now at TalkStreamLive.com. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. as usual and uh, tonight we're joined by Scott and Susan Ramsey or Suzanne excuse me Ramsey and Frank Thayer we are talking about the Aztec UFO incident I know I've mostly been keeping my mouth shut tonight because uh, I'm just enjoying listening to these people tell what they know about this very interesting case and before the break you guys were talking about, about the military road that goes into the area I'm surprised that that was not actually covered up even more I mean it, I guess at the time when these when these crashes occur back in the old days they they didn't really concern themselves much with covering their tracks did they Well that's funny that you say that because they actually did they didn't cover up the the uh, road but they did go in and landscape and plant trees and things wow. in there to try and make it look like it had nothing had happened there but we found uh, several years back we were there, and it was when we were uh, recreating, moving the craft, and we actually flew over the the area, and it was amazing to see that the pinyon trees were all planted in rows. You don't see that from on the ground, but um, so clearly it had been replanted. 
So they did make yeah, an effort yeah. to try and cover it up to some extent. That's yeah. It's just interesting that they leave a road like that, though. I mean, you'd think they would they would bulldoze some dirt onto it or something. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, at least go ahead. No, I was going to say that that area in 1948. I mean, all Thayer and Suzanne and I have been out there numerous times. It is so desolate today. I can't right. even imagine what it was like back, you know, in 1948. I, I think that there was probably some logic to well, cutting a small road into a cul-de-sac on top of this mesa with all the oil activity that was just starting right. probably wouldn't mean a hill of beans. And I have to agree with them. I mean, if it weren't for the fact there was a con- concrete slab at the base of it, it just looks like somebody started cutting a road and quit. Right. Well, also, if you think about it, I guess that companies like you're talking about, uh, like Centerpoint Energy or someplace like that, uh, th- those types of outfits might actually use that road for their, mm-hmm. you know, their ongoing act- activities. Um, ha- has anybody found any more? Any have any civilians found any artifacts or or strange uh, objects out there? Have you looked? Oh, yeah. I mean, I been going to that crash site now i'm on my 30th year like i say we we mapped it with the metal detectors i mean good ones you know the ones you rent not the ones you buy um i because again the craft was intact there's really not going to be any debris from the craft um just you know physical evidence of trees that were cut down to make uh make way for the the new road and that type of thing but you know, we haven't no. run across anybody that actually has come away with any articles. Right. Is there any ongoing strange activity out there, you know, lights in the sky or uh, encounters with non-human entities or anything like that? Well, it's that, that whole part of New Mexico to this day right. has, has a lot of sightings. Right. Uh, you know, we hear about that all the time. I, Suzanne and I and eventually Theral start getting them after this. It seems like after a new book comes out, that that wakes a bunch of people up in their memories. But um, even some politicians in the area have told us privately that they they've had sightings going back as far as they were kids. Hmm. Well, and you had also you had the uh, the the famous Farmington uh, UFO yeah. incident that happened. Uh, got what? Uh, September or excuse me, March seventeenth, eighteenth, and nineteenth of nineteen fifty. Three three days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's one that uh, David Marler, uh, who did the book on flying triangles, he has a book coming out. I don't think it'll be this year. I think next year. We've helped him a little bit on it. And it's the whole book is about the the whole flying armada that went over uh, Farmington and northern New Mexico back in 1950. That's a that's a huge case that nobody ever talks about. Mm-mm, no, no. And, and there was a lot of eyewitnesses to that incident. Uh, 2,500, yeah. That's according to the Farmington uh, paper. That's what they put, you know. Um, and, and a lot of those people are still alive. One is a good friend of ours. And that's who I helped put David together with. Uh, and he's done a really fantastic job on his own putting a good book together on that. Well, it, al- it almost makes you wonder if it was a uh, 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 an attempt at a search and rescue or, or something like that uh, going on. I, I think there was a connection, my own personal opinion, to the to the 1948 event, and it's, it's almost two years to the day later. Uh, 
But yeah, I mean, we could never prove that, but it was amazing. I mean, there, at times there were as many as hundreds of flying saucers in the sky, hundreds. But like you, like you said, I mean, that whole area of the United States had been a hotbed of activity of UFO sightings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know why, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe because as some people pointed out the whole, you know, Roswell Air Base being the, uh, the only, the only location where atomic weapons were being stored. Well, you had the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos and in Sandia, Sandia National Labs, right at the uh, Kirkland Air Force Base. Uh, you had a heavy Navy and Air Force experimental radar being tested in New Mexico, Moriarty, Continental Divide, Alvado Lake. Uh, also, there to, also that radar was there to protect Los Alamos. Uh, the Eighth Air Force, the, the, the most powerful Air Force. Uh, group in the world, aside from the atomic group, 509th at Roswell was based right there in, in uh, Albuquerque. So yeah, you had a huge military presence, Trinity Site, uh, White Sands. Uh, the stat I like to give people, in 1948, there were roughly, and this is counting constables, local sheriff's department, police departments, and highway patrol roughly 258 police officers in the state of New Mexico. That's the fifth largest state, uh, and you had over 2,500 military police. Hmm. Just military police. That's a 10 to 1 ratio. It's huge. That is. And that gives you an idea of uh, the the presence of military police versus law enforcement uh, civilians. Uh, now, uh, Frank, you made a reference uh, before we uh, uh, took our first break there about this craft, um, about the way that it could have that that it was taken apart. And I take it this was from uh, uh, Scully's book. You want to uh, uh, describe that to, to us? Because uh, other than this situation, I don't think I have ever heard anything quite like that before. Fascinating. And when people buy the book and they read the chapter on moving the craft, which um, Scott and Suzanne and, and their friends spent a lot of money recreating how it was moved, people, the debunkers are going to say, well, a 100-foot disc, there's no way you can move it. Scully had the facts. What he said was he was told by the scientists that even though this craft was smooth, had no rivets, no bumps, no seams, no nothing – that once they were inside it, they were able to discover that it was held together with pins. It was modular. And when these pins were removed, it was separated into three separate sections. So you had three 33-foot sections that could be stored vertically on the dragon wagons and moved down the mesa and down the dirt roads and to safety at Los Alamos. And again, Frank Scully had this in 1950. It just seemed so bizarre that nobody would, was taking it seriously. And we believe that that's exactly how it, how it worked. Yeah, that is. I mean, I don't think, uh, I don't think I have ever heard uh, a description um, of a UFO like that uh, in, in, in any other document or, or, or book. So that is, it's, it's, it's very unique. And the other unique thing about this, this, this whole incident 
was the now uh, uh, of course the the Roswell crash people now associate it with bodies being found but that really that was something that only came out later much much later in 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 history of the retelling of the story and there's still some doubt whether or not <clears throat> that aspect of the Roswell incident actually ever happened. However, the Aztec crash, they discovered uh, 16 bodies. Uh, am I correct on that? Inside this craft? 14, 14 to 16. 14 and to it, 16. Was, it was right after the the landing, the control landing, saucer opens up, they find the body. So uh, with Roswell, supposedly the bodies have been out there in the sun for a long time. These were, uh, well, they weren't fresh, per se, because they apparently were charred brown as though they had been cooked, or and so they weren't gray, they weren't green, but they, they at least were not um, decayed in any sense. And what was the physical description of these bodies? Again, we look at, at Frank Scully and, and all the other witnesses that they were little guys. I use Stanton Friedman's term here, little guys. Yeah. Yeah, thirty thirty eight to forty two inches tall. They were had slightly larger heads, but they looked human. Uh, they didn't have much in the way of nostrils or ears, right? And their right. mouths were thin as a slit, and they were all wearing one piece coverall type uh, uniforms with metal right. buttons. Well, in other words, you say they look human. They're like another variant of, of Homo sapiens or a closely related species, aren't they? Yes, eyes yeah. were a little bit larger, but uh, yeah. not not so much different that we wouldn't see them as humanoid. Right. They said that they had perfect teeth too. Wow. So you don't hear a lot about them having teeth. So when I when no. I hear the story, to me this has the ring of truth to it because uh, I know that you know Tim and I both have written uh, material about about these beings possibly being actually from here, um, and they have been here a long time, and it it would fit that they were part of the human family in some way, um, maybe just an earlier civilization, um, you know, a breakaway civilization. So it's very interesting to hear them described as, as more human-like. Did, did they, were they, were they basically bald or did they have any hair at all? We don't have any information. Of, they maybe fuzz at the top of the head. There was no description of having hair. Right. I hear, I hear about the teeth. I think, wouldn't it be nice not to have dental problems? <laughs> <laughs> well, and considering also that if these um, if these creatures had been burnt somehow, you know, some way, you know, if they did have hair, it probably had been, you know, would have been burnt off. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and and you say yeah, that that's they were, true. And you say they were wearing like a, a coverall type of uh, outfits, like a well, jumpsuit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Wow! Yeah, that is. That's any true. any info on what that was made? That cover that coverall was made from. We haven't found anything, but the color was, I think, dark dark blue, wasn't it, Scott? Mm -hmm. Yeah, bluish in color. Yeah, we you know over the years we've had witnesses that we interviewed, uh, Ken Farley, Doug Nolan. Um. They didn't spend a lot of time on the bodies because they weren't really allowed that close to them. By the time the bodies were coming out of the craft, the military was there. And uh, Doug goes on in detail uh, about that part of it, not detail about the bodies, but the detail about they were kind of swept away. And 
therefore, we don't have a lot of information on it. I'd love to know more about it, but we, we're only as good as reporting as the people we can talk to. And unfortunately, like Doug's case, he was 19 when it happened, 19 years of age. Other than the police officers, a husband and wife rancher, and Bill Ferguson, all these guys were kids. Mm-hmm. You know, kids meaning 19 to 20, 22 years of age. But so. you, but you did talk to witnesses who saw the bodies, albeit not close up. But right. I mean, you know, you they you talked to people who who did witness the bodies, and I mean, you, this information isn't coming solely from Frank Scully's uh, book. Oh no, exactly, exactly. Right. They they confirm uh, what Scully reported, and uh, like Frank said at the beginning. You got a guy like Ken Farley. He stopped overnight in Durango to stay with an aunt, and then pick up a, a travel mate that was down in Cedar Hill, and they're on their way to, uh, well, as he put it, raise hell for the weekend in San Diego. Uh, he wasn't a local guy from there. Mm-hmm. He was from Kansas or somewhere. I'd have to look at my notes. So he he came through. They saw the commotion going out Hart Canyon Road. It's kind of funny when his you read his interview and then you read Doug's. Doug's talking about all the oil field workers. We're in one group, but there's a group of guys, two or three guys to the western edge of the mesa that kind of kept to themselves. Then you interviewed Ken, and he says, well, we weren't really in the group of the locals. We kind of stayed on the western side of the, of the mesa trying to keep to ourselves because we really didn't know what to do. And again, you know, there's no collaboration because... You know, they're from two different parts of the country. Yeah, once again, there's that two identical stories from witnesses very separated in culture and geography. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, I don't I don't know if I asked this earlier in the show, but uh, I want to ask, ask again, what um, what did the the, the, the craft look like i mean was this the uh, uh what you would think of as the traditional saucer shape you know people describe it as like two plates uh placed together lip to lip type of situation mm-hmm. you want to take that frank go ahead okay <clears throat> and the witnesses all describe it very similar doug nolan was one of the best we've listened to his interview and it was a flat plate-like two saucers put together with a dome on the top and a dome on the bottom. The edge of the saucer was very thin, just a few inches wide, and he said that there were, even though the saucer was dull aluminum in color, that there were bands around the circumference that looked like gold to him. And this, isn't that the way you remember his interview, Scott? Yeah, three, yeah and it's funny because Ken Farley talked about the same three gold uh, rings at the the section where the two, the lenticular section that ran all the way around the craft. The so, largest, the, and the largest part, the dome on top was larger than the dome on the bottom. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they all reported the same 18, thing. Eighteen feet tall and three three layers, three mm-hmm. floors. Three floors, right. And, and, Not your conventional Roswell description where they're, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet in, di- in diameter, or across, I should say, not diameter. So this was definitely a, a much bigger ship uh, 
there's really no similarity between it and Roswell at all. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I know the uh, uh, Scully put the uh, sizes being like what was it, like ninety nine point ninety nine feet uh, uh, in diameter. Right, right. That's a big ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it a is. Very, that's a very big well, craft. You figured, you know, if you apply pi to it, it's three hundred and fourteen feet in circumference around. That's mm-hmm. a pretty good size. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty big. So, um, what about, um, I know a lot of the skeptics of this whole incident say that uh, this never happened because there was uh, there was no um, you know like newspaper reports in the area you know uh, 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 about this happening you know that uh, uh, surely that if a you know a hundred foot uh, craft came down on a on a mesa then you know all the local newspapers you know would have covered it and everybody in town would have known about it. <laughs> You know, it's it's funny because last year we visited with the local newspaper um, owner's son, owner's son mm-hmm. and we discussed the story with him. Very very nice person. Wait, hon, I want you to I want you to tell about this. He um, very nice person and and welcomed us into his home and we had this great discussion. And he said, and and so we told him the story, and he said, well. You have everything right, except, and this is where it got really funny. Go ahead and tell. Well, George Bauer owned the Aztec newspaper, and his son went off to fight in World War II in the Navy. He was on three different ships. Came back after the war and quickly saw the handwriting on the wall that small-town newspapers were going to be very short-lived. So he went back to school and got his Ph.D., and... He's just an outstanding person. We had a lot of fun with he and his wife. And uh, we had heard that he had a different variation of this story. So we called him, and Suzanne and I flew out. Actually, Frank joined us for part of the trip. And uh, he said, you know, you basically have 100% of the story correct. Uh, It happened early in the morning in the wee hours. And he goes on to, I think he said his dad was involved in going out too, wasn't he? At some point. At some point, his dad ended up going out there. And uh, oil field workers were there. Mr. and Mrs. Knight were there. He even gave us their son's name and what he went on to do. And he said, you, you got it nailed. The only problem was it wasn't a flying saucer from Beta Reticuli, he said jokingly. It was a V-2 rocket that went astray from White Sands. Hmm. And which, you know, we, we knew immediately would be impossible because they didn't have the range in 48. The V-2 never had that range, period. Uh, but it was funny that that was the cover story in his era that the parents had put out. Those that went running out there at the wee hours of the morning mm-hmm. would come back to tell their kids later that, okay, we were there, wink, wink, but don't ever tell anybody what happened. Because we don't want the American people, the military doesn't want the American people panicking that V-2 rockets could be falling on your house when they go astray. And, uh, you know, he was just absolutely convinced that when his father told him it was a V-2, that that's what it was, period, end of report. So it was a disinformation as opposed to the information not getting out. Another experience that I had was, having lived in the area, I had worked in media for some time, and 
a had worked with a woman who was a award-winning writer and not only for the local newspaper but in other mediums <clears throat> and i called her one day and i thought you know we had done some projects together and i i wondered if she would confide in me and tell me if she had any experience or any information on aztec this is a mature age woman and and i i called her and i said can you tell me any information about it and the conversation started out so fun and jovial and the minute I brought that up, it became very, very somber. And her statement was, Suzanne, no good can come from that. Oh, really? And I, and I said, well, I said, you know, it's a long time ago. We're doing some research. I know what you're doing. And, and she said, you need to just walk away. No good can come from that. Hmm. And I was directed away from it. And I said, so you do <coughs> or did have information about it. And she said, no good can come from this. So, you know, there there was a a lot of pressure on a lot of folks there, I think, to try and just suppress it. Hey, keep, keep in mind, Tim and Mike, the, the other thing, if the Roswell Army Airfield hadn't put out the press release by Walter Hott about they recovered a flying disc on a ranch, the media would have never known about that story. Right. Yeah, when you look at, yep. and I've, I've, I've been to Corona, I've never been to Roswell, I've, I've been to Carrizozo and I've been to Corona, but when you look at how desolate those places are today, that's a great comparison to how Card Canyon is to, as far as desolate today, let alone back in 1948 or respectively 1947 for Corona. Uh, if something happened out there today, it would have to be witnessed by an oil field worker to alert the media or they would never know about it. Hmm. Oh, case in point. I, I love the story. I rarely ever tell it. We were hiking one day east of the crash site. At, when I say east, you know, 40, 50 miles east. And we were stopped by a Department of Wildlife guy and uh, just wanted to chat and make sure we weren't illegally hunting. And... Uh, asked where we were going to end up in case, well, for whatever reason, he asked where we were going to end up. I said, we're going to camp overnight up on this ridge. And it's it's at the high Sierra of New Mexico. And he said, oh, okay, that's great. And by the way, we've been looking for a twin-engine Cessna. Hmm. If, if you happen to come across the remains of an aircraft, you know, please mark it and let us know. And the guy I was with was new, with from New Hampshire. He started laughing. I said, "He's serious." I mean, it's so desolate out there that you know, right? That those things can happen. Oh yeah, they 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 happen all the time. I mean, you know, you have these planes. You know, planes go up and they disappear, and right. you know, they they crash somewhere out there. They're never really. They're never seen again. Maybe. 30, 40 years later, somebody may run across them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, and, you know, you brought up Roswell, and um, it, there there has been speculation that the Aztec crash was handled a lot differently by the military than Roswell because of what they learned from Roswell. You know, how to come in, how to keep people quiet, how to keep media attention away, get things, take them out, mm -hmm. you know, little, uh, you know, little fuss, no muss. You know. Yeah. Yes, I think that that's very much the case. They got their act together 
and they were able to control the story so that if it hadn't been for Frank Scully and the research scientists who got the disc when it was moved to Los Alamos, the story never would have gotten out. And once it got out from Frank Scully, they had to come up with Plan B, as you know. Well, let's uh, let's talk about that. Um, now, yeah. uh, once, uh, according to Scully's book, once the uh, the craft was taken apart and carted away, where did it end up? Well, I'll take a stab at that first, and I'll let uh, Frank Thayer jump in. The only recently we've we received a lead as a result of this new book from a gentleman who worked at another airbase who may end up being extremely credible. Uh, so far, there's every indication he is. And he claims it ended up at the base where he was located, and he saw it in 1958, 10 years after it was recovered. Hmm. Uh, immediately, if you were to have a craft like this and you need to get it somewhere secret quick, you're only roughly 100 miles from Los Alamos. You know, 10,000 of the most brilliant scientists working there in 1948, high security, lots of big buildings. Uh, that would be a place that you'd say, well, we could quickly get it there. Uh, of course, most people lean toward Wright Pat in Dayton, Ohio, and say, well, that would have been the most logical because they had the... Uh, Alien Technology Division at that time. Well, not at that time, but the, the predecessor to it. My mind's drawing a blank right now. But ATEC, I believe it was. Um, I, I would probably bet the farm that immediately it had been taken to Los Alamos. Right. That would I, make the most sense. And that's where the scientists would have encountered it. And although, again, with these the latest revelations that you are working on, and there's going to be interviews to to support this, that some of the scientists were actually taken to Aztec before it was the saucer was removed from the mesa or flown out there, and in, including a nurse. But that's for another book. And I, I think that uh, they realized how important it was, and Los Alamos was one of the most secure sites in the world at that point. And the scientists could get their first look at it at Los Alamos, and then they could work on uh, transporting it to uh, back east to Dayton, Ohio, or someplace like that. Yeah, I used to uh, I used to work at a television station in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, you know one of the rumors uh, there was that the uh, the Aztec craft had eventually ended up. Uh, uh, there at, uh, at at right field, which that always surprised me. You know, considering that I mean, even at that time, I mean, you know, you're talking about a uh, you know not a huge uh, population area, but still, it was it was it was big enough that it just always surprised me that they would uh, uh, take something like that there rather than keeping it out west. You know, like say Los Al you know Los Alamos. Uh, you know, uh, wherever. You know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I, I, this new gentleman that Frank and Suzanne and I are referring to is a wealth of information. Uh, he went as far as telling us, and this has been over four telephone interviews, 
um, who all was working on it, what scientist that, that he was familiar with. And ironically, so far, the travel records of those two scientists check that they were in Dayton, Ohio, in that time frame. Hmm. And this guy's uh, no spring chicken. And the fact that uh, he has so much detail of his notes from over the years, I, I, you know, Stanton Friedman always talks about the white basket, the black basket, and the gray basket. Uh, this guy is in the glowing white basket right now. So I want to shift the focus right now to Silas Newton and his involvement with the uh, with the Scully book. You know, how, how did Scully uh, come across him? How did uh, uh, Silas Newton come across the uh, uh, the whole uh, crashed UFO incident at Aztec? I'll, I'll take part of it. I'll let Frank and Suzanne jump in. Uh, actually. Silas Newton and, and Frank Scully had corresponded back and forth uh, prior to the whole Aztec event. And that, that's a long story I won't get into today. As a matter of fact, uh, Scully was running for local political office. And I have a copy of the letter here that uh, Silas Newton, who was a staunch Republican, and Scully was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, and... Uh, Silas Newton sent him a, cant, a contribution campaign, a, a campaign contribution, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, in the note, he said, you know, I want you to know you're the first Democrat I've ever given money to. <laughs> and that was some time before the book. And I think when uh, Silas Newton was told the story about the Aztec uh, situation, he had already he already had a conversation, you know, had several conversations with Frank Scully, and you know, like we talked about earlier, the the scientist uh, said the story is going to break eventually, which we know now it wasn't, uh, and they wanted they wanted somebody with credibility like Frank Scully to 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 be the one breaking the story. So that's kind of how that whole thing gelled together. Mm-hmm. Well, just, uh, I mean, who exactly was uh, Silas Newton? I mean, was he was involved with, uh, uh, was it uh, oil research? He uh, owned uh, uh, his own oil company up in Colorado and had oil holdings all over. And the uh, oil and gas field uh, history books, he's best known for the rediscovery of the Wrangley oil fields up in uh, Colorado, where, where ironically the Gaybauer family still has uh, siblings living up there. And that was a huge rediscovery. He made a lot of money when big oil companies uh, would, uh, for the lack of a better word, abandon a well mm. or a lease. Mm-hmm. And they would be convinced that there was no more oil to be had and or such a little amount that it wasn't worth their while. And Newton had a knack for saying, well, I'll buy that lease and buying the lease and making a fortune off of that same well. <clears throat> and he was he was fairly well known. We interviewed Tom Dugan a couple of years back. And we've really never taken much of that interview and put it in the book. Tom Dugan is an oil man in, in the area. In Farmington. Mm -hmm. He's a very, very successful independent oil man. 
was a wildcat. And yeah, started out as a wildcat. He actually came to the Four Corners area uh, working for the Phillips brothers. And, uh, gee, he, and Tom Dugan just had such a knack like Silas Newton uh, that he could smell oil underground, oil and gas. Hmm. And Suzanne and I interviewed him a few years back, and he knew Silas Newton very well and said, yeah, he made his millions uh, buying up uh, wells similar to how Tom Dugan did it. Um, the uh, At the time of 1950, thereabouts, when, when Scully's book came out, he had a net personal wealth of $20 million, which was, you know, substantial today and, and unbelievable back in 1950. Right, right. Now, in uh, uh, Scully's book, I mean, he's not referred to as, you know, by his name. They, uh, Scully used a pseudonym, but uh, uh, he kind of combined Newton and somebody else, didn't he, into uh, uh, one uh, person? No, no, no. Silas Newton is referred as Silas Mason Newton. Oh, okay. It's Leo, Leo Gaybauer. Uh, and that we could argue that point forever, but basically, uh, the scientists that approached Newton and Gaybauer, uh, Scully blanketed them with the, the name Dr. G. Okay. And you could make an argument that maybe Leo Gaybauer was one of the scientists. It's, it's so hard to tell. Yeah, but Silas Newton is well identified in the book. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. And well, Silas Newton is also the person that, that spoke at the University of Denver uh, under the, the pseudonym of Scientist X. And that's when they they had all the science. I'll let, I'll let Thayer take that. He He's more current on that than I am. Okay, Frank, before you do that, we need to take a break right now. So I wanted to remind our audience that you are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. We will be right back, so please stay tuned. I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person, and if you're a book person too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. 
Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Bible Spells. Here for the first time in the inspired pages of Bible Spells, Reverend William Orabello unveils a concealed code hidden throughout the Holy Scriptures that can bring you an abundance of money, personal success, as well as love, good luck, healing, happiness, and protection of your home as well as loved ones. More important than the Bible code are Nostradamus' prophecies. This secret code was revealed to Reverend Orabello during an encounter with divine supernatural beings who changed his life forever. Now you can learn this unique system yourself to materialize all of your personal needs and influence others. Order William Orabello's Bible Spells from Amazon.com. Or get your copy, a free Bizarre Bazaar subscription, as well as a bonus companion DVD for $20 with free shipping and handling by calling 646-331-6777. 646-331-6777. Join the club that gives you stuff. Hey, thanks! Radio Loyalty. Here's how it works. Just click on the Radio Loyalty banner right now and sign up. Then, you keep on listening like you already do. But now, you earn points. Those points add up, and you can trade them in for stuff in the Radio Loyalty store. Earn more points by sharing your station with friends on Facebook and Twitter, answering surveys, and by using the apps in the New Players App Store. Pretty simple, right? Radio Loyalty. Click that banner to join now. Only in the forest can you see this. But nothing beats the moment you see that. Cool! That's your child's eyes opening up to a world of possibilities. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. And you might just see this. (laughs) Visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Free stuff for you just for listening to this station. Yeah, we got your attention. Here's how it works. You click on the Radio Loyalty banner right now and sign up. Then you keep on listening like you already do. But now you earn points. Those points add up, and you can trade them in for cool stuff in the Radio Loyalty store. Earn more points by sharing your station with friends on Facebook and Twitter, answering surveys, and by using the apps in the New Players App Store. Pretty simple. Free stuff just for doing what you already do. Radio Loyalty. Click the banner to join now. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. Frank, uh, I'm going to let you continue your thought uh, from uh, just before we we took our last break. 
Okay. Well, I remember that Silas Newton introduced Frank Scully to some of these research scientists who were working for the government during World War II and whom he knew prior to World War II. And this is how the connection worked. So uh, we think, and I think Scott will agree with this, that probably the scientist X originally scheduled to speak at the University of Denver probably was Highland because he had an office in Denver, but he chickened out. He said, but he chickened uh, out because he was was being pressured by the government. Yes, concerned that he had he had told something he wasn't supposed to tell. Oh, really? In, in the year from 1949 to 1950, they suddenly realized the government was not going to release the story, and that they were all told to keep their mouths shut. And I think it was pretty forceful. <clears throat> but Silas Newton was under no such restriction, so. Silas Newton went on stage in March 1950 uh, and talked to a, that classroom, Science 101 class, standing room only, to tell him there was a, um, flying, there's such a thing as a flying saucer. And, you know, we do have the recording of his lecture that was made by, um, made by the radio station guy that we, we mentioned Kohler. before, George Kohler. Mm-hmm. And wonderful wire recordings. The audio quality is excellent. We've got that, and as you know, there's also the Air Force Office of Special Investigations uh, interrogation of Kohler, uh, probably the only only recorded Air Force interrogation that has slipped out into into the public. Anyhow, Silas Newton makes this lecture and is whisked off the stage by Kohler, get out of Dodge fast, because within an hour, uh, the government officials, probably Air Force, were at the University of Denver for, Find, trying to find who this guy was, they wanted to find him and fast, and it took them a long time to do it. But that was the genesis that led to Frank Scully's book in September of 1950. Hmm. So Silas Newton, without Silas Newton, the whole thing wouldn't have happened. But as we pointed out, that the archives at the University of Wyoming at Laramie had um, a manuscript that included Silas Newton's uh, autobiography, not finished, but amazing stuff. And nowhere in this autobiography or any of Scully's writings is there any hint that there was something bogus about the flying saucer story. They believed it, both of them. And we have the letter in the book saying uh, where Silas Newton tells Scully, we have done much good. And uh, I think that that, you can see Silas Newton was the perfect target when J.P. Kahn came out from the San Francisco Chronicle, was not able to buy the story from Frank Scully, and so he decided he was going to get even, and he went to, as we've talked about, I think Suzanne mentioned this, uh, that he went to, to J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, not just to make a report, but he wanted to, to get something on Silas Newton. Do you want to reprise that, Suzanne? Well, Okay. Well, um, I'm 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 just I'm just curious now. How did this reporter? Uh, now, you, you said that he wanted to buy the story from Scully. Now, uh, you know how uh, how how could that happen? I mean, you know, if Scully hadn't uh, published the story yet, I mean, couldn't this reporter have just gone ahead and just beat him to the game? Well, Scully had Scully had uh, actually done some magazine articles mm. about it. Little teasers, uh, I guess, is that a good mm-hmm. way to, to mm-hmm. explain good. it? Right. And um, 
And so that's how uh, J.P. Kahn even became aware of it. I see. And you know how gossip gets spread around and things get spread around. And, and um, that's why he went after Scully and said, we want this story. It's, it's a huge story, and we want this story. And, of course, Scully said, I've written books. I've done biographies. I've done all types of things. I can do – I'm planning on doing it myself. And uh, uh, JP's statement was, of course, we'd need to know everyone that's involved, including the scientists. Well, Scully had already promised the scientists that he would take that to his grave. He would never tell who they were, and he didn't. He never did. Right, never did. And so that was, you know, that was a big issue with Scully, that, um, that his, I guess you could call it journalistic or his own honor, would be continued on, that he would not not betray a confidence. Mm -hmm. So therefore, uh, JP had no option but to go through, or anybody that was interested to go through Scully, because really Scully held all the cards. Yeah. And Scully introduced Newton to J.P. Kahn, I believe, and and then J.P. Kahn tried to get the story from Silas Newton, who right. was who wouldn't dish it at all. Mm -hmm. hmm. So he 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 tried he tried to dodge Scully completely and just go sure. directly to the source. Ah, oh, okay, I see. And and, and Silas wouldn't uh, wouldn't play ball with him. Unfortunately no. for Silas Newton. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So, uh, what happened? What happened at that point? I mean, uh, did uh, uh, did this reporter just uh, decide that uh, he would uh, uh, do something else, or did he take it personally? Well, he went after he went after him, and the way he did it, uh, Herman Flater of uh, Denver, Colorado, had uh, hoodwinked. Uh, Leo Gaybauer and uh, Silas Newton into investing into a health machine. Kind of like, you know, a lay-in phone booth. He'd lay in there, close the door, flip on the lights, and it would cure whatever ailed you. Oh, okay. and, right, right. And then at the same time, Silas Newton uh, had uh, Flater invest in some of his uh, doodlebug equipment that was finding oil and water and everything else you'd want it to do. <laughs> But, you know, for for all the interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm losing my voice, Tim. All the interesting new stuff about uh, Aztec, I, I really hate to do what the debunkers do, and they sit there and they regurgitate all the legal problems that uh, they caused. Well, and I and I would like to say, though, that, that J.P. Kahn was not your average person. Mm -hmm. It sounds like he was a, a reporter, so what? No big deal. He actually was a man of, of considerable means. He never had to work a day in his life. He had all types of resources and time um, at his disposal. And when his ego was bruised at being rejected by at not being able to get this story, and he had shot off his mouth that he would be getting the story, um, he took all of his time and energy about discrediting people, you know, I can speak for us, I can speak for Frank, I don't know about you, but we don't have the time or energy or money to do to spend discrediting someone or revenge. And, and really, what's amazing about this story is we're able to track through his letters and how he went about doing this. And um, it's it's really a, a tragic story of how, how it affected the the credibility of this incident. 
Well, and that's that's the thing that that I find very interesting about the whole Aztec UFO crash is that it it uh, uh, for a long time really became kind of like redheaded stepchild. I mean, it, it was a UFO crash that had no love from anybody, and uh, and and would you say that all of, that a lot of this comes from this smear campaign then that was conducted by this reporter? That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah, and I and I think you're, you're 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 playing a little too hard there. The there's a lot of people that I found in the old UFO crowd mm-hmm. that really sunk their teeth into Aztec. I I think maybe old people my age uh, probably wrote off Aztec as it was just a big hoax. Scully wrote a book, blah blah blah. But the old timers, um, with the exception of Stan Friedman, you know, it was in his grave basket. But some of the old timers always thought there was a lot to it. And we, we know that today by the cards, letters, and emails that we get from, and again, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but the old timers that say <laughs> that was a great case back in the, in the fifties and thanks for resurrecting it. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, let's let's remember that J.P. Kahn was an excellent writer uh, for whatever his other uh, virtues were lacking. <clears throat> and when he wrote the article for True Magazine in September 1952, mis- the Flying Saucers and the Mysterious Little Men, it was a it was a hit piece. It was a character assassination piece, and what he did was. Smear, Silas Newton, Leo Gebauer, and Scully, by inference, saying that Scully was a dupe. <clears throat> and he said because Silas Newton uh, defrauded somebody, therefore Aztec was a hoax, a logical fallacy that people accepted back then. You look at it now and say, how could this have happened? The trial in November 1953 – uh, Silas Newton, Leo Gebauer found guilty, never sentenced, never fined. Silas Newton paid the court costs, and everything went away except that the government had its goat, sacrificial goat. And uh, Aztec became a hoax, and it, it slipped underneath the radar for 30 years. Do you think that there may have been um, government involvement with this as well, or military involvement that uh, uh, you know that that they may have prodded uh, uh, this reporter I- I- into doing this? Because I mean, the, obviously they could see that this was getting out of control, and uh, uh, you know, I mean, you know, or or was it all just this reporter? Yeah, I mean, and I know no. this is just speculation. I think yeah. this is a great, it's a great opportunity that um, JP really uh, gave them. Mm-hmm. You know, it really was a, a great avenue for them to, to follow. Yes, and you, there are letters between him and J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, and we know, why would the FBI pay attention to some reporter in San Francisco about a fraud case? Obviously, there was national security involved here, and so... I think Suzanne hit it right on the head that they saw him as the perfect avenue to destroy a flying saucer story that they did not want out. He was he was really a gift to them. Mm-hmm. Well, the, uh, we, we, Tim, have every letter that we could ever find, and it's a stack about two and a half to three inches tall of all the letters back and forth from Sil- or well, yeah, Silas Newton to Frank uh, Scully, Leo Gaybauer to Silas Newton, 
the correspondence between J. Edgar Hoover. And let's not forget when J.P. Kahn notified the FBI, he did not do it through a special agent in charge or a field agent in San Francisco. He went direct to Washington, right to J. Edgar Hoover, and we have a copy of the letter and a copy of the correspondence back to J.P. from J. Edgar Hoover. When we talk about all the documents we've collected over the years, it's quite elaborate. In 2007, I went out to San Francisco and interviewed Robert McClay. And Robert worked with J.P. at the newspaper. And in Robert's spare time, he did the artwork for the cover of J.P. Kahn's rebuttal to Frank Scully's book, Behind the Flying Saucers. And we have the original artwork on the book, and it was called The Flying Saucers and the Mysterious Little Men. And that was a full manuscript book ready to go to the printer. And at the last minute, J.P. Kahn, for whatever reason, decided not to release the book. But in wrapping up the whole Newton-Gabauer thing, because we have so much more to talk about, in the Ogden manuscript, Ogden brought out documents that I did not know existed. And that's the Ogden book that, again, was never published. He wrote it in 1960. It's one of the best books about the Aztec crash. I don't know legally how we would go to get that book released. We have the original manuscript here. But he talks about, and Frank Thayer and I kicked this around, thought it was interesting. Newton and Scully went and then sued Kahn and Herman Flater. And I think they sued him for $25 million. Is that right, Frank? Is that the number? Yes, that was what they were asking. But we don't know what the settlement was. No, it's a sealed settlement. They settled out of court. It sounds like they settled on the courtroom steps. But that, you know, of course, like we were laughing about before, these are things that the bunkers and skeptics don't ever bring up, that they did have their day and walked away with some money. Okay, so then after this, after this all happened, what then, what event, what happened to Newton? What happened to Frank Scully? I mean, did he, Scully never wrote any other UFO themed book, did he? He wrote two other books, and Armor Bright is one that I can get my fingertips on. And he does talk about the Aztec incident and that, as well as other things. Right. And then the other book that's really hard to get, what was the title of that one? I got that in storage. Anyway, it's, he talked, he hits on it again, talking about the research and the legal trouble they went through and blah, blah, blah. Right. He hints to legal action, but apparently the legal action came after the books were out because he doesn't go into detail. Or part of the settlement was he didn't talk about it. But the original lawsuit for $25 million and to settle out of court, those guys still had to cough up some money. Well, and think about $25 million back in those days, what it was worth. Yeah, it was about close to $100 million here. Yeah, it would be. And Silas Newton, whatever happened with him then? 
He died in the 70s. Oh, by the way, um, again, to show our archives is pretty full, we have the complete FBI file. When I say complete, everything the FBI would release to us on him, uh, it took time to get. And then years before that, another UFO researcher had uh, gotten the FBI file on uh, on Leo Gaybauer. Hmm. And when I worked with the FBI back in 99 and 2000 to get the files, it was a painstaking event. They, they were they were very slow in coming up with it. Uh, they would give you the cover page saying, in this section, there are 106 pages. We're releasing to you 90. <laughs> so there you, there you know, there's 16 pages. They, they wouldn't release even if they fully redacted it. So... You know, the big question is, boy, we'd love to have all the all the pages that we didn't get, as well as the pages we got that are so redacted, some are ridiculous to read. Uh, interesting, Leo Gaybauer's FBI records are no longer at the FBI archive in either D.C. or Maryland or Virginia. They are now at the National Arca- Archives in Maryland. And we we have a friend, the gentleman we were talking about earlier, Mike Price. Uh, he went up there and spent a couple of days, and after two days, he he did not get any files on Leo Gaybauer. Really? Huh. So they are, you know, for the guy that was supposed to be a con man, well, we know he wasn't. We know he worked for Air Research. Right. Uh, but why the secrecy? Why don't we? Why? Why have those files? And it's very rare. Even the archivist at the FBI said it's very rare when the FBI relinquishes your files to the National Archives where they're sealed. <laughs> Creative filing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and nowadays, you know, Freedom of Information Acts are so difficult to file that it's you know until we get a. A new group in Washington. It's it's just a waste of time trying to get files right now. Well, it also it, it also makes me wonder that after all of these years, uh, if if a lot of these files were stashed away so creatively that nobody re- remembers where they are anymore. And, exactly. You know, it's just going to take somebody maybe accidentally uh, years from now running across them. You know, like you mm-hmm. know, what's this? You know. Because uh, I've I've talked to other researchers who uh, who have been looking for you know so called lost files, and a lot of them have been so um, gosh what's the word you know that that I'm looking for I mean they, they've been mislabeled uh, uh, deliberately and and stashed away, knowing that uh, they're not going to be found you know. 20, 50 years, you know, in the future, unless somebody just runs across them by accident. So, right. so, so yeah, I mean, you know, there's obviously, there could be a treasure trove or a lot of this material may have ended up in corporate hands and then no freedom of information act, uh, is ever going to, uh, work, you know, That's right. yeah, yeah. I mean, you have a private agency there. You know, I think mm-hmm. you know, I, I think a lot of UFO material has ended up, you know, in private hands, you know, companies that work for, you know, the military or the government and, you know, we'll, we'll never see them. 
<laughs> Could be. Yeah. But you know, well, the Suzanne and Thayer and I are working on a lead right now that we received back in January, which I won't go into right now. But ironically, there, there's a, a little bit of a thread that uh, potentially, and I say that with a capital P, potentially as recent or as, or as late after 1948, uh, 1958, some of the Aztec technology was ending up uh, within manufacturers and suppliers to the U.S. government. We're following a lead pretty close right now. Oh boy! Uh, good luck. Good luck with that. I hope. Uh, I hope that comes through. And when it, you know, and when it does, you'll you'll have to come back on and let us know uh, what happened because that's uh, that that'll be a fascinating lead to uh, look into. Well, it, sometimes it takes a year or two or longer. We oh, we don't man. usually. We usually don't shoot off our mouth or shoot from the hip until we've researched it pretty well. No, oh, I know, I know. Uh, well, uh, you, do you, have you run across uh, from any of the other eyewitnesses who who were still alive when when you had a chance to interview them? Did anybody ever, uh, you know, say to you that yeah, I mean, you know, after the fact, you know, people came to me and told me to shut up. After the fact, after, after, they, yeah, after, you know, after the, because I know that, you know, you had mentioned uh, the eyewitnesses who were there at, at the crash scene. Once the military arrived, they were oh, round, okay. they were rounded up and told, you know, yeah, don't tell what happened, you know, go on your way. Uh, did anybody say to you that, you know, like you know, a week later, a month later, two years later, somebody came to me or called me on the phone or, you know, or, or whatever and, and said, don't talk about this? Actually, I think I can say safely that they didn't have. Most of them didn't speak about it. Mm -hmm. It was it was quiet, and they just. I think he means people that talked to us, right, Tim? People that we interviewed. You're talking about that went to the witnesses, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Most of them did. Although years later, there was a man that did just the opposite. A man that went and visited one of the, the county commissioner that was on the one of the witnesses and um, and several other people in town and had some interesting questions for them, but never told them to keep silent. Mm-hmm. He was ex-military and he was actually just trying to gather information, but I, I never heard anyone mm. threatened again. They, most of them just didn't say anything. They took the threats very seriously until later in life. Well, okay. And then, you know, since, since you brought it up, I mean, you know, was, uh, had anybody been told after you had talked to them, uh, were they, has anybody ever approached and said, don't talk to them? You know? Not to my knowledge. <laughs> oh, okay. Not to our knowledge. Huh. Hey, keep, keep in mind, Tim, some of these people we got to, you know, Ken Farley was on oxygen when we interviewed him. He died a year, about a year later. I don't think even his family thought he'd make it a year. Uh, Doug Nolan uh, passed away December of 2003. Um, for excuse me, Suzanne and I were going to go out that month, go out and uh, film him and come back before Christmas. And he had had a series of strokes and he died before we literally got on the plane to go see him. Oh. So we're, we're interviewing these people late in life. Right, right. But obviously, I mean, this this was a situation that uh, it it has remained 
firmly entrenched in their memories. I mean, because I know a lot of debunkers are like, oh, well, you know, after all these years, you know, they're mixing things up. They can't remember what's going on. And uh, you you found otherwise. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's kind of like, uh, how old are you, Tim? I'm uh, 57. Okay, you and I are very close to the same age. So you remember exactly where you are when John F. Kennedy got shot, right? Oh, yes. Good I analogy. Mm-hmm. And and uh, <laughs> I remember <laughs> what class I was in in, uh, in uh, elementary school when they ushered all the kids together when Bobby Kennedy died. Uh-huh. And I know where these I was. These are life-changing Yeah, moments. and these guys, they might not remember what they had for breakfast that day, but they could tell you what shirt they were wearing and what truck they were driving in the oil fields the day <laughs> of the UFO incident in Aztec. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and, you know, we, we may have briefly touched about this, you know, earlier in the program, but I mean, have, has anybody ever, uh, you know, said to you, or have you run across any documents on, uh, just, uh, where exactly, uh, the Aztec crash may, or craft may have ended up? Uh, I mean, you know, I know that people have talked about, you know, Wright Patterson and, you know, and places like that. But I mean, you know, even if you have a craft that's broken up into uh, a separate pieces, I mean, that's still a big, a big craft. And in, you know, 1947, you know, it, it, it would have been difficult, I think, to get it very far. 48. But yeah, um, yeah, that's. That's absolutely true. That's why we've always thought that probably the the least path of resistance was going up the backside to into Los Alamos. Oh, okay. uh, but this lead that we got in January claims in '58 he saw it referred to as the flying saucer recovered outside of Aztec, New Mexico, mm-hmm. and he saw it uh, at a base other at a base and not at Los Alamos. Hmm. Okay. Right. But that's not to say that it wasn't moved around. Right. Sure. Know, right. Depending well, on what scientists wanted to work on it or what type of technology they were gathering or areas of specialty or whatever. And and was that the only uh, incident that you've run across of somebody, uh, you know, accidentally running across it in a hangar and, uh, uh, you know, and, yes, and, and it, it actually being referred to as the Aztec craft? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, We've never had anybody say, hey, I, you know, parked next to it at Los Alamos or, you know, anything like that. And, and you know, this guy's story on the surface, you'd kind of shrug and say, well, you know, uh, I don't know. But, boy, he sure brought a lot of facts with him. And uh. so so far, we have not been able to to put a scratch in his story. Well, and Frank, I know uh, uh, when you were on uh, Exploring the Bazaar with myself and uh, Tim Beckley, uh, Beckley asked if, uh, uh, you know, just just off the top of your head, I mean, how many other uh, uh, UFO cra- uh, crashes or shootdowns possibly do you think has happened in the uh, in the United States? Well, I think that uh, Scott would agree that far more than than we have been led to believe. We know about Kingman, Arizona. We know about Paradise Valley, Arizona. Uh, there's also a story, a MUFON story, about a, a crash near Santa Rosa, New Mexico, in 19, the early 1960s. There's Coyami in Mexico and uh, Del Rio, Texas. Those are all 
good stories that seem to have some substance. Can you add any more, Scott? Uh, San Antonio, New Mexico. I mean, I've, I've never looked into it. Suzanne, I've been down there twice. That's mm-hmm. just south of Socorro. That supposedly right. was after Roswell and somewhere, depending on the dates, maybe may as late as 1950. Uh, you know, again, these are incidents we've never researched, but they're the stories that fly around. My favorite, uh, besides Aztec, is probably Kecksburg, because I may have seen it that night when it went over Pittsburgh. Oh, wow. I think really? Yeah, I was a young kid. I was being brought home by my godmother. My parents had a function that night, and uh, we lived in Mount Washington, which is basically a big hill that overlooks Pittsburgh. And uh, my godmother saw the flash first, and her comment was, oh, my God. And I thought it was like a big Roman candle going across the sky. Then it made a 90. And her concern was because we had several night base, night missile bases around Pittsburgh that it was a night missile launch. Pittsburgh being the steel capital of of, of America back then. Right, right. Uh, any of the high target spots had night missile bases around them. And uh, it was the only night that I was allowed to stay up real late and watch the news because when my parents came home, we told them about it. And apparently, you know, it was big news in Pittsburgh that night. Mm-hmm. Marie Tory had gone out there, and, you know, she was a famous uh, TV personality, and on and on and on. So, um, Stan Gordon is somebody you probably want to get on your show. He's done incredible research on the Kecksburg uh, incident. Oh, yeah. I was, uh, when I was a kid, I was bitterly disappointed that I had missed that. You know, when I was hearing about it in the news the next day, you know, because, you know, I I lived in uh, central Indiana and, Mm -hmm. you know, we may or may not have been able to see it if we had been outside at the time. You know, we may have been a little too far west. But as a kid, I just I remember my disappointments to this day even. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I I, I didn't have a calendar back then. I didn't write it down, but it certainly coincided with the newspaper articles. You know that it was it was December and it was sixty five and you know mm-hmm. on and on and on. But uh, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I was just going to say. Unfortunately, you know, we were we're rapidly approaching you know the end of the show. So uh, before we end, I just I wanted to give uh, all of you a chance to let our listeners know uh, 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 the titles of all your books. Uh, where they can be found, uh, uh, your, your presence on the internet, you know, uh, do you have any, you know, like upcoming, uh, uh, talks or, you know, appearances that, uh, that you'd like to plug now? And, uh, this is, this is your opportunity. <laughs> well, we, we have a website and it's www.theaztecincident.com. You can find us on, Twitter, and you can find us on um, Facebook, The Aztec UFO Incident. And uh, the book is available either on our website or um, you can get it through Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com. It is available on Nook and Kindle, too. And and let our listeners know the titles of your books. Sure. The the Aztec UFO Incident. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you buy it off our website, uh, the advantage being we'll ship the book that day or the next day, worst case, and we will personally sign it for you. 
That's a good Excellent. deal. Yeah. And, and I have a, I have a special offer tonight. The first person that goes on our website and buys a book and in the comments section says they heard about our book on your show. Okay. We'll get a free DVD, a one hour documentary special on the Aztec incident. And it's got a bunch of good people in it, Stanton Friedman and uh, Nick Redfern, uh, the cast, the cast of all the, the good UFO folks, a cameo appearance by me and Suzanne. And it's a $24 value. We will throw that in absolutely free for the first person that mentions it, that they heard it on your show. If there's a close tie, we'll settle it by giving out two. Yeah, what a deal. I, I had to pay for mine. Um, but <laughs> We even charged you more than that, didn't we, Frank? <laughs> I think so. So help me coming. Um, but you can also uh, get to my website, www.frankthere.net, and I have some stuff about Aztec there as well. So uh, any way we can get the book to you, we want to do it. All right. Well, thank you very much, all of you, for for being with us tonight on The Outer Edge. I really appreciate you uh, taking your time. And uh, uh, do you uh, do you have another book in the works? Uh, anything coming up uh, soon? <laughs> oh, I don't know. We'll we'll have to we'll see how this one performs. I uh, like Frank and Suzanne. I always talk about. No sooner do we get one done than we get a truckload of information enough to do a third book. And I, I honestly think that uh, we we do have enough for a third book. We've learned yeah. to say never, never to say never. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, fantastic! I'm looking forward to uh, uh, seeing any uh, any new material that uh, that you run across, and hopefully, maybe somebody listening uh, to our show tonight uh, will get a hold of you and say, "Hey, you know, I've got something that you've never heard before." Wouldn't that be it, wonderful? It, it be. happens. Mm-hmm. It does. Well, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. So, Mike, it's been a pleasure talking with you again tonight. You too, man. You guys uh, take care. And I hope everyone out there enjoyed tonight's program. I know we really did. So, for Mike Mott, I'm Tim Swartz. You have been listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Good night and have an excellent tomorrow. Tomorrow.